From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. Beloved listeners, today I am your host, Olivia Ashe. Today we're going to be taking on the topic of the implications of sex and gender-based language in the law with Kara Dansky, an advocate for protecting the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls on the basis of sex. I want to acknowledge that there are parts of this conversation that may trigger reactions for those of us who have different views about this topic. And if you're able to engage, I hope you choose to continue to listen anyways. And then take time to listen to us on the Podvocate team discuss our thoughts on the implications of sex and gender-based language in the law. Also, I want to note that this episode speaks of a particular incident of indecent exposure, and it gets into the particularities of that. So as needed, please be mindful of the presence of children and your own needs as you listen to this episode. Lastly, as always, the opinions expressed on the Podvocate by our guests are not necessarily the opinions of the Podvocate members, Loyola University Chicago School of Law, WLW, or the Loyola University Chicago School of Communications. It is our mission here at the Podvocate to explore the boundaries of practicing law in the 21st century and to present diverse opinions on various topics that affect the modern lawyer. And so with that, let's dive in. Hi, Kara, and welcome to The Podvocate. I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic of removing sex-based language from our laws and hear your opinion on what this means for the rights, privacy, and safety of women and girls. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. First, I'd just love to have you introduce yourself and share with us how you came to this work. Sure. So I went to college at Johns Hopkins and studied political science. And then I spent a couple years working for the federal government before going to law school at UPenn Law. And after I graduated from law school, my first job was as a staff attorney in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. And I should say, I went to law school not really knowing exactly what I was going to do with my law degree. But working in the staff attorney's office at the Third Circuit, I handled pro se appeals uh, in federal cases, the overwhelming majority of which came from prisoners who were either challenging their underlying convictions or they were challenging the conditions of their confinement in state prison. And I decided I really wanted to go into criminal law. So I became a public defender after that. And I was a public defender for about five years. And then I went to Stanford Law School where I was the executive director of the Criminal Justice Center. And we studied and researched and analyzed specifically the phenomenon of mass incarceration and looked at California sentencing policy and encouraged change in some of California's sentencing rules. And from there, I spent some time in the Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at the Department of Homeland Security, looking at all the many ways in which the Department of Homeland Security might be threatening the civil rights and civil liberties of those of us, uh, Americans and immigrants alike. Uh, And From there, I went to the ACLU and I spent two years working at the ACLU on the campaign to end mass incarceration. And I oversaw the ACLU's investigation into police militarization. 
And I left there in 2014. And basically since then, I have been a consultant, except for a brief period of time, I worked at the Washington, D.C. Sentencing Commission, looking at sentencing policy in Washington, D.C. But besides that, I mostly spent the past couple of years uh, doing paid work in consulting and doing a lot of law and policy analysis on a broad range of topics, including, for example, drug policy, immigration policy, criminal justice policy, policing and sentencing and uh, since 2015, I have been doing volunteer work at various women's rights organizations. And I know that's what we're mostly here to talk about today. And so today, uh, I am working full time with uh, what's called Women's Declaration International. I'm the president of the U.S. chapter. And I recently published a book, which you know, called The Abolition of Sex, How the Quote Unquote Transgender Agenda Harms Women and Girls. So that about brings us up to speed. Thank you, Kara. Thank you so much for walking us kind of through what brought you here and where you are today. And that's actually exactly where I want to pick up. I want this conversation really to be focused on, you know, the recent book you published, uh, The Abolition of Sex. But first, I think it's going to be important that we get into some definitions. And this is for a couple of reasons, to help our listeners follow us. And also, I know for me, and I'm assuming for you as well, as members of the legal community, it's important that we define our words, specifically the ones that we use in our laws. So let's start with defining two important words for the purposes of this conversation. And those words are sex and gender. Would you talk a little bit about how you define sex and gender? And we're going to use those definitions to really be the basis for this conversation. Thank you for the question. I have a friend who uh, he frequently has me on his podcast, and he's just astonished that laws are being rewritten to include definitions that are totally vague and understandable. He He's mystified. He can't understand how this is happening. And I don't have a very uh, satisfying reason for him because it just appears that our federal and state lawmakers are in fact redefining words in very vague and incomprehensible ways. But you're right, it is very important for the law to define terms specifically. So specifically with respect to the word sex and gender, sex is grounded in the material reality of biology. Uh, it is simply true that everyone is either female or male, all of us, regardless of a self-declared identity. And it is also true that there is a very tiny percentage of people who have chromosomal anomalies that don't match up with the more typical XX or XY. Approximately 99.08 of us are either XX or XY, and approximately 0.02% of us have a different kind of chromosomal makeup. And that's important to acknowledge, and it's equally important to acknowledge that everyone with a chromosomal makeup that is neither XX or XY is still either female or male. So that's what we mean when we talk about sex. Gender, on the other hand, from a feminist perspective, are is the roles, responsibilities, and stereotypes that a society imposes on us on the basis of our sex. And this is what feminists have been fighting about for centuries now in the U.S., Thank you, Kara. And I want to kind of expand a little bit on that, particularly for the purposes of this conversation, and bring in two other words that we'll be using that are really important. And those are the words woman and men. 
for the purposes of this conversation, for our listeners, so that you know, we're going to be using these terms as defined by Merriam-Webster. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, this is the definition that Kara draws on in her book. And we know that oftentimes, uh, this is the definition that Kara draws in her book. And so Merriam-Webster defines women as being an adult human female and men as being adult human male. And so these words have a sex-based meaning for the purposes of this conversation. Yep. And there's one more word though that I'd like you to find first, Kara, because it's codified in our laws. And that word is gender identity. Would you define that word um, and how it is used? Well, it's interesting. It doesn't have anything resembling a consistent definition. When we ask for definitions of this term, we're given um, strange words that that really don't mean anything. And there's no better example than California uh, Civil Rights Law Section 51, which defines it in some sort of completely convoluted manner. It says sex includes gender, Gender means sex, gender identity means gender or sex or sexual or gender expression. It just goes back and forth and it's, to use a very technical term, gobbledygook. Um, so it, it doesn't have any coherent meaning anywhere in US law. I know you wanna get into the various ways that it is being codified and inserted into federal regulatory policy. And um, I know we'll get into that, but the Biden administration includes that phrase and it contains a definition that is really completely uh, meaningless and vague. I'll look it up and maybe we can come back to it. Yes, thank you. And I think with those definitions, we're ready to jump right in. And so I want to start kind of where you ended with the Biden executive order. And so you talked a little bit about this order, and this order is titled Preventing and Combating Discrimination on the Basis of Gender Identity or Sexual Orientation for our listeners. And I'd love to hear from you, what is this executive order about um, and really what's happening with it? Sure. So in 2015, Senator Merkley from Oregon introduced a bill called the Equality Act. I know that's not what you're asking about, but I'm starting with the Equality Act because the Equality Act would redefine the word sex to include the words gender identity. And the Biden order that you're referring to, Executive Order 13988, draws on that definition to order federal executive agencies to redefine the word sex to include the words gender identity throughout federal administrative law. He signed this executive order on the very first day upon taking office. And what I think a lot of people don't understand is that, and I know you want to talk about women fighting for our rights, women have been fighting for rights based on our sex for centuries and for the administration to redefine sex to include the words gender identity throughout federal administrative law makes it extremely difficult to even define what a woman is. And the impact of President Biden's executive order will be felt throughout all of society in a myriad of ways. That's interesting. I'm curious to hear more about what you mean when you say the impact of the executive order will be felt throughout society in a myriad of ways. What exactly do you mean by that? And in particular, what does this mean for women and girls in your opinion? So the Equality Act is a sweeping piece of legislation. And just to be clear, it passed in the House 
in 2021, and it passed in the Senate Judiciary Committee later in 2021, and it is currently before the Senate. So it is not law yet, although Majority Leader Schumer has committed to getting the Senate to enact it, and we're quite confident that if it's fully enacted, President Biden will sign it. Um, so what it does is it takes various provisions of existing civil rights law where sex is protected as a category under various provisions of civil rights law, and it completely redefines sex to include the words gender identity. And one of, uh, there are a lot of problems with this, but one of my biggest issues with it is that it would amend Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was a crowning victory for the civil rights movement, right? The Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title II, which addresses public accommodations, was very specifically designed to eradicate racial segregation under Jim Crow, right? It used to be perfectly legal for places of public accommodation, and the law does define places of public accommodation, and the courts have interpreted it extensively. So what the law says and how the courts have interpreted it means that a place of public accommodation is virtually any public business that you could imagine. It includes, for example, restaurants, bars, hotels, amusement parks, movie theaters, stadiums, airports, right? Any sort of place that's in the public realm. And it used to be perfectly legal in this country to segregate those places, bathrooms, water fountains, all sorts of things like that, to segregate on the basis of race. That was perfectly legal until 1964. And one of the major achievements of the civil rights movement was to get this law passed in 1964 to say, no, we are opposed to racial segregation in places of, of public accommodation and in other places. And that's good, right? Like that is a great thing. And probably the vast majority of Americans agree with that. Most of us cannot imagine going back to racial segregation under Jim Crow. That's, that idea is abhorrent to us. And what the Equality Act does is essentially seize that crowning achievement of the civil rights movement, and it obliterates sex. And it says that anyone can choose to identify as either sex, purely on the basis of their self-declared identity. Okay, okay. And I guess so my question here is then, what are women losing under the Equality Act, though, if women can still identify as women, right? So anyone can choose to have a female gender identity. Anyone can choose to identify as woman, as a woman. So what are women losing, if anything, if that is still a possibility for them? So there was an incident that took place in July of 2021 in Los Angeles, California. California has a state law that is quite similar to the proposed Federal Equality Act. And it says that places of public accommodation are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of so-called gender identity. So in July of 2021, a spa called We Spa, which is a place of public accommodation under the law, permitted a man to enter the women's section of a nude spa and parade around the women's section where there were naked women and girls present. And he was allowed to, per to parade around the women's section, fully naked, sorry to use this language, fully erect penis in front of children, 
in front of vulnerable women and children. And he was permitted to do that because of the California law, because he has a so-called female gender identity. What the Equality Act would do is mandate similar circumstances throughout the United States in any place of public accommodation. Yeah, I'm familiar with that case uh, because you wrote about it in your book. And I remember you further talked about how, in this case, there couldn't be a claim that this woman could make under the Equality Act because um, the Equality Act protects folks who have a female gender identity. But she was able to make a claim, I believe, for indecent exposure. And so in that case, there still was a remedy for her. I imagine that this remedy would still be available for other women, that they could say, well, this was an act of indecent exposure, even if the Equality Act won't work for them. Maybe. I mean, we'll see how that plays out, right? It wasn't the woman making a complaint about indecent exposure. It was the district attorney that ultimately brought charges, and I'm glad that they did. But that case hasn't proceeded, and so we don't know yet. And it sets up a really interesting clash of rights, right? How can this guy be charged criminally under the California Penal Code with indecent exposure if he, if his presence in the women's spa was perfectly legal under California's Civil Rights Code? And, you know, I'm not comfortable with the idea that we should leave it to district attorneys to charge indecent exposure when these kinds of things happen, because district attorneys have so much discretion and we have no way of knowing whether district attorneys are going to continue to bring charges in circumstances like this. District attorneys have total discretion to decide whether to bring charges in any case, not, not set, even setting this aside in any case. And the district attorney for the city and county of San Francisco has announced a policy. The reason I'm raising this is because to draw a distinction between what happened in Los Angeles with the spa and what I think might happen in San Francisco, because they're both under the same regime of you know California penal laws and California civil laws. The district attorney of San Francisco has a policy requiring every member of his staff and witnesses in criminal cases to refer to defendants and everyone else in accordance with their so-called gender identity, which would mean, as a practical matter, in a rape case in which a man is accused of raping a woman, if that woman were to take a witness stand and testify, she could be she would be required by or you know by the district attorney's office and possibly by the court to refer to an alleged male rapist as she. And I have very little confidence that if an incident like the Wee Spa incident in Los Angeles took place in San Francisco, that the San Francisco DA's office would actually bring charges. That's interesting. And I'm curious, though, how often does this really happen? How often is the scenario just... how often is the scenario you just described actually going to take place? And so is it really worth opposing the Equality Act when in fact that might demonize a group of people who have a female gender, who have a female gender identity by focusing on the very few cases where this stuff happens? I mean, I would say a couple things. One is there's no such thing as a female gender identity. Women are female, men are male. That's the end of the story. Women are not a gender identity. Uh, And the other thing, I would say two other things. One is, it happened to me. I walked into a bathroom in a restaurant, a women's room in a restaurant, and there was a man in there wearing a dress. And I just felt very vulnerable about that. I just don't want men in women's bathrooms. Um, 
and then the third thing I would say is how many is too many? If it's, if this only happens on a couple of occasions, should, if there's, if there was a girl, there wasn't any, a girl in the bathroom when I went into that women's room in Washington, DC, but what if there was, how many is too many before we say no, when, before we say women and girls have the right to gather in intimate spaces only with women and girls. And, you know, there, there are other reasons for this. It's not just about safety as important as that is. Safety is a critical issue here. Um, I felt very vulnerable with that guy in the bathroom. Um, but the other thing is, you know, I have a memory of being at an amusement park with a friend of mine when we were both 13 and she started her period for the first time at an amusement park and she was mortified. She was wearing white shorts. She was just mortified. And so we all, we were with our mothers and we went to the women's room and her mom washed her shorts out in the sink and she was just standing there sobbing first time. And, um, I don't want guys in there when teenage girls are having to right. There's certainly something to say about the intimacy of those experiences. And this really does speak to, you know, your point about the privacy and safety concerns for women and girls. And I also think about the safety for men, men, for example, who wear dresses in a men's restroom. And so I think the conversation about safety can go both ways. And maybe that's not something the Equality Act will address or can address, or maybe it is. But what do we do about the safety of men who don't ascribe to traditional gender roles, for example, in a men's restroom? This is one example um, of how we might think about safety as well for, for men. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting, right? Because if, you know, in our society today, men in dresses are permitted to complain about male violence, but somehow women aren't, you know, if, if men in dresses feel unsafe in the men's room, that's a problem for men to solve. Men can stop harassing and assaulting those men and simply accept them. And that's an interesting point because what's coming up for me is that maybe this is really about toxic masculinity and patriarchy. That might actually be the real issue. Something I've been kind of exploring is if men and women were free to present themselves however they wanted, would we really need the concept of gender identity to have such a strong stakehold in society in the way that it does? And maybe, you know, that's a topic for a different episode. But for the purposes of this conversation, I think it's important for us to think about, you know, how we got here. How do we get to the Equality Act and how do we get to Biden's executive order? In your book, you talk about a case I had never heard about before called Bostock. Um, And you talk about that case as one that kind of explains how we got here. So could you break down that case for us and give us your understanding of it? It's a great question. So that case arose out of three separate cases. There were two cases called Bostock and Zarda, where gay men were fired on the basis of their sexual orientation. And I think in those cases, it was factually undisputed that that was the case. Those men were both gay and they were both fired for being gay. The third case involved a man named Amy Stevens, who is a man who claimed to be a woman and demanded that his employer, which was a funeral home, uh, accept that he's a woman, permit him to wear the dress code that the funeral home required for women, demanded to be able to use the women's bathrooms in the buildings, and 
was was eventually let go as well, although it's less clear whether Stevens was fired on that basis or not. The court, I think, seemed to assume for the sake of argument that Stevens was fired on that basis. And the court, for purposes of argument and decision, joined all three cases and had oral arguments. And ultimately, the ruling was that an employer is not permitted to terminate an employee on the basis of sexual orientation or so-called transgender status. It said that for an employer to terminate an employee on one of, for one of those reasons would violate Title VII's provision prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex. So it ruled that sexual orientation and so-called transgender status are both forms of sex. Now, unfortunately, the Supreme Court did not tell us anything at all about what the phrase transgender status might mean legally. So we don't know. It hasn't, it hasn't told us. The court never once used the phrase gender identity. So that happened in the summer of 2020. And then in January of 2021, as we've discussed, the Biden administration issued Executive Order 13988, which I would argue completely misstates the Supreme Court's ruling in Bostock in two ways. One of the ways I think the Biden administration is mischaracterizing the Bostock decision is that the Biden administration says that the Supreme Court ruled in Bostock that sex must be defined to include so-called gender identity. The court never said that. Not once did it say that. The other way in which the Biden administration is mischaracterizing the Bostock decision is that the Supreme Court in Bostock was explicitly clear that its ruling was narrowly tailored to the Title VII context, which is discrimination in employment. The court explicitly stated that it wasn't ruling on bathrooms or sports or prisons or any of the other contexts in which this issue arises. But notwithstanding that very narrow ruling, the Biden administration is taking it and now applying it throughout federal administrative law in a manner I would say is very disingenuous. I will also just say, I don't like the Bostock decision because I don't like the enshrinement of the phrase, the, the undefined enshrinement of the phrase transgender status in the word sex for Title VII purposes. So I do not like the Bostock decision at all. But having said that, as much as I don't like it, it was narrowly tailored to the Title IX context. And the Biden administration is applying it in all sorts of other contexts where the court explicitly ruled it did not intended to be it, it did not intend for its reasoning to be applied. Yeah, thank you for that. That is such an interesting case. And it's really one that I haven't heard about. We don't really talk much about the lineage of how our laws have progressed in this particular area. So thank you for that. And yeah, the fact is now we're here with the Equality Act and with Biden's executive order. And so I'm curious how federal administrative agencies have been responding to Biden's executive order. You know, in general, has there been pushback or an overall acceptance of the order? So as far as I'm aware to date, the Department of Housing and Urban Development 
the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Education, the Department of Justice, and the Bureau of Prisons have all rewritten their own internal rules and regulations to redefine the word sex to include so-called gender identity. Now, HUD oversees, according to its own website, almost all housing in the United States, and it includes domestic violence shelters. What this means is that if a domestic violence shelter receives funding from HUD, then the domestic violence shelter is not permitted to discriminate on the basis of so-called gender identity. It means that if a man wants to be housed in the basis of a women-only shelter on the basis of his so-called female gender identity, the shelter cannot say no. Health and Human Services, of course, administers the Affordable Care Act. The way that I read its interpretation of the Biden executive order is that if any woman in a facility that receives funding under the Affordable Care Act demands to have a female health care provider, including in OBGYN type settings, and if the facility gives her a male health care provider that, that claims to have a so-called female gender identity, there's nothing she can do about it. We're currently in the middle of watching the Department of Education figure out what it's going to do with Title IX regulations in response to the Biden executive order, and we expect to hear more about that later this year. But mo more recently, the Bureau of Prisons has announced that according to President Biden's executive order, it is going to start housing uh, federal prisoners in accordance with their so-called gender identity, which means that it's going to follow several states in permitting convicted um, male rapists and murderers to be housed in women's prisons with vulnerable women. And I want to talk a little bit more about the prison issue in particular, because it doesn't get a lot of media attention. In your book, you talk about it as the prisoner's dilemma. And you talk about the laws in California that allow inmates to be housed in accordance with their gender identity. And then you also talk about how in California prisons, they're handing out condoms, which is an interesting, to me, recognition of sex in prisons, but also in some ways, kind of a skewing of sex because we allow men to be housed in accordance with their female gender identity. So I'm curious to hear from you more on that particular issue. Yeah, absolutely. So in March, I'm going to go back a little bit before talking about California. I just want to say something about Washington State. Uh, Washington State does not have a law that is similar to California's SB 132. However, Washington State does have a Department of Corrections policy of housing prisoners in accordance with their stated gender identity. In March of 2021, a local radio station out of Seattle published a story saying that there were nine men being housed in the women's prison with vulnerable women. One of these men went by the name Princess. He had previously been convicted of raping a 12-year-old girl and he was now being accused of sexual assault in the women's prison. That was a local story, not a single national media outlet picked it up. And taking off on your point that people aren't talking about this, you're absolutely right. Most people have no idea that that's true. So California enacted SB 132 in 2020, 
Governor Newsom signed it into law and it took effect early 2021. To the best of my knowledge, there are currently hundreds of applications pending for male prisoners who wish to be transferred into the women's prison. I don't know the numbers that have been, but some number greater than zero of male prisoners have been transferred into women's prisons. Sorry, the, there are two women's prisons in California. Um, and yes, as you said, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation started handing out condoms because they anticipated that some of these men would be raping and possibly impregnating the women prisoners. And of course, it's worth mentioning uh, in terms of mass incarceration, Black women and Latina women are vastly disproportionately represented among our prisoner population. And so it's vulnerable Black and Latina women who are primarily, uh, you know, becoming victims of this. Yeah, and we can't ignore who are the victims. I mean, given the reality of our systems of mass incarceration that disproportionately impact, disproportionately impact Black and brown women. And still I'm curious and questioning how often is that happening? How often are the cases like the one you mentioned in Washington happening? And is it so few cases that we risk demonizing men who have non-traditional gender identities who are placed in women's prisons as a result of these far and few between occurrences of assault? The argument that it happens so infrequently, I find to be very frustrating because if this guy, Princess, did in fact rape a woman in a Washington state prison and the response to that is, well, that that only happened once. Why is that okay? You know, why why do we make women in prison vulnerable? Why would we want to make female prisoners who are often themselves victims of domestic violence, sexual violence? A lot of these women struggle with addiction. Why on earth would we say that they don't matter and that we have to house these men in the women's prisons on the basis of their feelings? And that that's more important than women not being raped. That's interesting because it brings up what we're really contending with here. How are we protecting women in these particular scenarios? And still there's a piece we need to address, you know, like what do we do about men who don't ascribe to more traditional gender roles? And gender is an important part of this conversation. It's something we haven't talked about specifically yet here. So I do want to bring that into the conversation because you do talk about it in your book. In your book, you talk about why it was important for women during the early days of the feminist movement to get rid of gender roles. And so would you talk a little bit more about that and the implications of codifying gender into our laws? Yeah, it's a great question. And my view is that the codification of gender is incredibly regressive. I understand that, you know, I I consider myself to be a progressive, you know. I um, The organization I run, U.S. Chapter of Women's Declaration International is nonpartisan. We are Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and Greens. I've been a registered Democrat since I registered to vote at 18. And I understand that the codification of gender is very popular in so-called progressive circles these days and with the Democratic Party. And it's very frustrating because, in fact, it's the opposite. The codification of gender is incredibly regressive. We are going way backwards. We have gone as a society from take um take dresses, right? Uh, 
women fought to be allowed to wear pants. Like, no exaggeration. Like, that happened. Women were not permitted to wear pants for some period. Right, I remember that my grandmother, I don't think, started wearing pants until her late 50s. And she was rocking that jean skirt for a while. Right. I mean, it was considered very socially taboo for women to be able to wear pants. Now, I don't, I'm not mad at women who wear dresses. That's fine. If women want to wear dresses, that's great. But I also think women ought to be able to wear pants. They're just a little bit more practical, you know, Um, and women had to fight for the right to wear pants. And so now we can, and that's good. So we went from a society that said women have to wear dresses. And now we're at a point where we're saying anyone who wears a dress is a woman. I think that is incredibly, incredibly regressive. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's something that we should all really be curious about. Is the codifying of gender actually regressive? You know, we have this desire to be free from gender roles and sex-based stereotypes, but are we reinforcing those sex-based stereotypes and codifying gender identity into our laws? Yeah, I agree. I think another really interesting dynamic is... You know, at the founding of this country, the um, the Constitution, until the 19th Amendment, the Constitution did not address voting rights according to sex. Uh, the 15th Amendment did address voting rights according to race. And But at the founding of the Republic, the Constitution just didn't address it. It left it to the states to decide whether women were going to be allowed to vote. Not a single state allowed women to vote at the founding of the Republic. It wasn't a mystery to those men in power who to deprive of the franchise, right? It was only white property owning men who were initially permitted to vote. Nobody was confused about who the women were when it came to disenfranchising us. Now, all of a sudden, the word woman is up for debate. You can talk about it in other contexts. For example, female genital mutilation that happens all over the world. No one's confused about who the females are when it comes to female genital mutilation. That's interesting. And something that um, we haven't talked about yet is can we or how can we combat sex-based discrimination, things like female mutilization, if we can't actually talk about sex? We can't. That's precisely the problem. And then my critique or question is, is that really what the law is saying? Is it saying that we can't talk about sex, that we can't talk about women? Instead, can't it be interpreted that the law is just now seeking to protect a bigger and broader category of people? Alongside protecting women, it's also protecting men who don't ascribe to traditional gender roles. And so now we just have a bigger umbrella. What is the harm? in that? Well, I guess, well, first of all, the harm is is precisely as you say. We can't fight sexism if we don't have a clear understanding of what sex is. So that's step one. Step two is why would we even do that? You know, instead of asking what's the harm of having a bigger umbrella, I would ask the question, why on earth would we want to include men in the umbrella of women? Like that just doesn't make any sense to me. That's interesting. And I think Your response is one that is worth really wrestling with in this conversation, because often a bigger umbrella is discussed as being more inclusive. And so, you know, generally society sees inclusivity as something that's positive. And so that's something that we should do. And that takes us to another question, you know, 
how can we legally protect men who don't ascribe to traditional gender roles without compromising the safety and privacy of women and girls? Is that possible? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm happy to address that. I wanted to respond to something you said, but now I'm forgetting what I wanted to. Oh, I guess I just wanted to say, I do think that um, I think it's when we talk about inclusion, we have to understand that when we're including men as women, we are excluding women. So for example, you brought up Leah Thomas. Leah Thomas is a man who is being permitted to swim on the University of Pennsylvania's swim team. And the reason this kind of came to national attention is that Thomas, during one of the competitions, absolutely shattered previous swimming records that had been set by women. There were women who accomplished um, great things. They, they, they held records for the fastest times in various races, and now they don't anymore. They're out. Those women are out because Thomas now holds the records. So I understand that inclusion is an important concept, but I do want to emphasize that when we include men who claim to be women, women pay a price for that. Um, okay, how can we do this better? So the Women's Declaration International U.S. chapter is urging members of the United States Congress to introduce a different bill called the Equality for All Act. And this bill would do three things. It would protect women and girls on the basis of sex. It would protect lesbian, gay, and bisexual people on the basis of sexual orientation. And it would protect everyone on the basis of nonconformity with sex stereotypes. So that is my answer to your question about how can we do this? How can we protect people who don't conform to traditional sex stereotypes, which is a valuable goal. We should want to do that. Um, and my answer to that is we should just do it explicitly. We should protect people on the basis of nonconformity with sex stereotypes in the law. That's a great thing to do. And also protect women and girls on the basis of sex. And what is some of the feedback that you've gotten about what you just proposed? Has it been well received? We spoke about it with a very small number of U.S. senators in 2021. It didn't make any progress. And just later, um, sorry, in late January, we encouraged the signatories to the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights to email their representatives and senators. And we made it very easy for, for people to do this. We, we sent out a message and they could do it with just a click of the button. They could send the link to our proposed bill to members of Congress. <clears throat> and as far as I know, there was something like 320 messages got sent to members of Congress. So members of Congress know that this is out there. I'm not aware of anyone who's introduced it. But again, this was only late January, so I, I want to give it some time. And Kara, I'm going to make sure to link to that proposal in the show notes just for our listeners who are interested and curious to think more about this topic. And that's kind of what I hope happens. Uh, having brought you on the podcast is to really drive curiosity in the legal community about what it may mean or what it may not mean to remove the sex-based language from our laws. I think this is a topic that doesn't get a lot of coverage in what we call left-wing spaces, and that's a detriment to all of us. It's a detriment when we decide not to have difficult conversations, particularly around our laws in a legal setting, because I think it sharpens, in many ways, 
us as critical thinkers. And that's important. This conversation quickly gets looped into like, well, this is a discriminatory practice. And I think that we can think deeper, particularly around this issue and challenge each other. That's what I'm hoping to bring forward with having this conversation as difficult as it may be. I think it's important for us to have difficult conversations, even ones that we have already deemed to be on that. I think it's important for us to have difficult conversations, especially ones like these, where it deals with, you know, especially ones like these, where it deals with what we deem to be discriminatory practices because we have to be critical thinkers as lawyers and legal scholars. So um, just one thing, uh, and then I want to get to the point you're making about the importance of having the difficult conversations. I find conversations about the word discrimination to be really interesting because we seem to have gotten to a place where we all seem to think that discrimination is necessarily a bad thing. And I don't think it is. I think it's actually essential to discriminate between certain things. And that doesn't have to mean discriminating against anyone. For example, we can, can, we can discriminate between men and women. There's nothing wrong with discriminating between men and women. What we really want to stop is the situation where, <clears throat> the situation that feminists have been fighting for centuries, which is men get all the power and control. And in order to remedy that, the fact that men have all the power and control, we have to discriminate between men and women. And I don't think there's anything at all wrong with that. Um, And then the other thing I just wanted to say is I think that you're making a really great point about the importance of having this conversation because you're right. Our country is not having this conversation. We just aren't having a candid, open conversation about what all these changing laws and norms are doing or the implications, not only for women and girls, although that's my focus, but for everyone. And I think, you know, we really need to be having that. You know, for example, we we didn't even really touch on this, but um, the FBI currently maintains crime statistics according to sex. And you can go on the FBI's website and you can find columns and tables where it lists numbers and percentages of crimes, including violent and sex crimes committed by men versus violent and sex crimes committed by women. Of course, we know that the overwhelming majority of violent and sex crime is committed by men. If we completely abolish the distinction between male and female, how are we going to know that? How are we even going to be able to track crime statistics between male perpetrators and female perpetrators. What's going to happen to our society's ability to name the reality of male violence against women? Have we thought through the implications for public health research? We know, for example, that the CDC and the NIH track the impact of different drugs and chemicals on women's bodies versus men's bodies. If any man can just say that he's a woman, how are we going to be able to do that? How are we going to be able to conduct any long-term public health research if we ignore the material reality of biological sex? So I guess my point in saying this is that I think there are consequences 
there are very far reaching consequences of ignoring the reality of biological sex that our society has not even begun to grapple with. It's a question worth considering. What does it mean for these different sectors of society, including women's health, if we no longer use the distinction of women to mean females whose bodies, brains, and hormones are different than males? I think it's a question, you know, really worth considering as a part of this conversation. And there's just one other question I had in relation to the FBI statistics, which you also brought up in your book. Are those statistics which distinguish between men and women on who commits crimes actually valuable? Are we actually using those? I mean, women are still faced with so much violence in general that I'm like, does it really matter if we make the distinction? Because we're not even really using that as a tool to address violence against women. Feminists do. You know, feminists are making arguments all the time. Right now, the... um, the Violence Against Women Act is up for reauthorization before Congress. And in getting the Violence Against Women Act in the first place in 1994 and reauthorizing it every time it comes up for reauthorization, feminists present arguments about the overwhelming epidemic of male violence against women. So it is it is really important to maintain those crime statistics and to use them in our laws and policies. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for bringing up that point. I haven't really thought about it from that particular perspective. And that puts us right at the end of our time. Kara, thank you so much for joining me today. You know, to talk about your thoughts on what the legal implications may or may not be for removing, replacing, and redefining sex in our laws. This is a difficult conversation um, and one that we both agree is an important one to have. And I'm so glad that we could have it here Thanks so much for having me. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, there is an episode following this episode that brings on The Podvocate team to discuss our thoughts on the implications of sex and gender-based language in the law. And know that our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information. The Podvocate is produced by WLW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are myself, Olivia Ashe, Emming Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Johnson. Special thanks to Professor John Dean for providing this resource and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University, Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.